turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Job, chapter 40. Two sermons left in Job. And so this week and then next week, um, this week we get the second speech of God to Job. And then uh, next week we will see the final conclusion. It's been about 27 sermons or so to work our way through the book of Job. And I've been thankful for it. God has used it in a tremendous way in my own life. Um, and I trust that he has used it in yours as well. And so here at the end of the book, we're actually going to start at the end of this speech and then go back and work our way through it and through the text together. And so if you actually, this second speech begins in chapter 40, runs through chapter 41, and then we see Job's response to this speech in chapter 42. So just go to chapter 42 real quickly here for us uh, at the start. You might remember last week, uh, God gave his first speech, and Job's response to that was silence. Uh, here God had, had unveiled all the ways he's in control of the world and his power, and he's in control of even confusing things. And Job's reaction to that was put his hand over his mouth and say, well, I'm not going to say anything. I'm silent before you. He wasn't at a point where he was ready to praise God yet. His heart had not yet been turned or moved to a place of worship. His heart was still struggling. Uh, and so where he had come to was a point of saying, I don't need to say anything else. But he wasn't yet ready to proclaim truth. And I want to contrast that response with how he responds to this second speech. So Job 42 verses 1 through 6, this is Job's response to the speech we're going to spend our time in this morning. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The argument all the way at the beginning of the book from Satan, the accuser, was that Job is a gold-digging worshiper. In other words, he worships God for what it gets for him. And Satan's argument against God was, Job only serves you. Job is only righteous. Job is only holy because he gets lots of kids and great health and great wealth because he serves you. That was his argument. And his argument against God was that, God, you are an insecure manipulator. And so you give people what you want to give them so that they'll love you. You have to buy love. Your love is a covered love. Your love is a purchasing love. Your love is a love that can be won or lost. And that was Satan's accusation. So the whole book has hinged on those arguments. Satan saying that no one loves God just because he's God. And God doesn't really love people. He just looks to get from them. We go through this whole book then of losing 10 kids and losing his health and losing his wife and losing his wealth and losing respect to come to the end of the book in Job to say, I repent and I praise you. And so we would begin to ask, what in the world happens in this speech to move Job from his silence to worship? There's a couple of hints in this end of the speech, and we'll spend a lot of time next week in this response of Job, but a couple of clues for us. Now, clue number one, Job's going to say this, no purpose can be thwarted. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. Something happens in this speech to make Job say this. Now, Job has never questioned God's sovereignty. Job has never questioned that, that God is in control of all things at all times, and he works all things according to his will. Job has never questioned that. Job has always been convinced that his suffering is within the sovereignty of God. That's never been on the table. Job's never thought that you have God's kingdom and you have Satan's kingdom and you have some kind of yin-yang kind of thing going on that the forces balance each other and, and so maybe this is just evil but then God isn't over it. No, Job has always believed that God's in control. This phrase though is something different. When he says that his purpose can't be thwarted, what it means is that Job has become convinced that the plans of God include what he has experienced and 
It matches what he already knew to, be, knew to be true about God. In other words, he always knew that God was loving and just and kind. And he's begun to question that. He's actually begun to say that God cannot be just for this to have happened to me. Something God says in this speech convinces Job God is still just, he's still kind, he's still loving, and yet what he has experienced falls squarely within God's plans. Now that's actually much easier for you and I to see. It's easier because we have Job chapters 1 and 2. Job didn't have that. We know that there was this whole argument in heaven going on and accusations from Satan. We understand that the whole book is God's plan to disprove those lies. Job doesn't understand that. Job is in the midst of puzzling pain, confusing pain. He doesn't know what's going on. Just like you and I go through suffering and we can't see clearly what is God doing. Why is this happening to me? Our hearts long to find some value in the pain that we experience. Our hearts long to find some reasoning behind the trauma that we go through. Job is just as clueless at this point as you and I are. And he's wondering, but something God says convinces him that all of this is in God's plan, and yet God is still loving, kind, and just. That he's a good God. What could God say to convince him of that? The second clue I just want to point to is this phrase, I repent, in verse 6. He says, I despise myself. It, it literally means I repent. I turn against myself and, and I repent in dust and ashes. It's so easy in the midst of suffering to make life all about us and how much we don't deserve this. Man, I... I <laughs> I was talking with some friends yesterday, and we were joking, we were laughing, and I was telling them about when I was, I think it was my 13th birthday, um, and I was not the most pleasant teenager in the world. <laughs> it says my 13th birthday, and uh, I have two much younger than, I, than myself brothers, and one of them was potty training, and he had had an accident, and so my parents told me, they wanted me to wash, help, I was helping clean him up, I would take, help take care of my brothers. It was my job to kind of wash out his underwear. This is a pleasant thing to do on your 13th birthday. I was angry about it. I did not want to do it. Uh, it was not how I wanted to spend my 13th birthday. Didn't feel like it was fair. Didn't feel like it was just. Uh, let everybody know I was angry about it. Went to the bathroom, did it, and I let go of his underwear and they went down the sewer system. God is my witness. It was not on purpose. But I can understand why my parents believed it was on purpose and my anger. It really was a mistake, but they were convinced it was intentional. So when, if you were to ask me, how did I spend my 13th birthday? I spent my 13th birthday in the basement of our home helping to dismantle and snake out a sewage system. That was not fun. And my singular focus at that time was, this isn't fair. This isn't just. No matter what puzzling pain you may experience, a health diagnosis, a financial crisis, a relational issue, it is easy in the midst of pain and suffering to make the focus, I don't deserve this. This isn't just. Job has exactly dwelt there. Job has had his heart go there continually and consistently. And so whether it's we're in a situation we've done wrong and we feel like the consequences are too severe, or maybe we're like Job and it's in the midst of puzzling pain, it's easy for our innocence to drift to arrogance and begin to believe that God has somehow gotten this wrong. And so Job says he despises himself and he repents. Now, the phrasing here is incredibly interesting because out of the 108 times this Hebrew word that's used here that's translated in our, in our English Standard Version as repent, out of the 108 times, 72 times it's not translated as repent. But rather is I'm comforted. And so the question we would ask is when Job says this, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes, is Job saying I'm repenting in the midst of the ash heap, or is Job saying, I'm finding comfort even while I'm still in the ash heap? 
And I actually believe it's the second, along with, frankly, every respected commentary. Now, why do I say that, and why is it so important? Because while you and I know the end of the story, Job doesn't yet. I want to ask you this. Is it possible to be comforted in God while you're still in distress? See, the hard thing about Job is, is if you've been around the Bible, around church much, and, and not everyone has, and that, so I don't mean that judgmentally, but you know that at the end of the story, Job's going to get his health back, and he's going to have 10 more kids, and he's going to get all of his wealth back. And I think it's all too often, it's easy for people to assume, well, because that's the way the story ends, that's what comfort Job, comforts Job. But I want you to know, Job actually found comfort while he was still suffering. And this is really, really important, and we'll unpack this next week. Why does Job end that way? When, quite frankly, oftentimes, your suffering and my suffering doesn't end that way, does it? This week, I sat in the funeral service for my, one of my closest friends, Mom. As he's lost both parents, he's only 42, lost his dad 17 years ago, suddenly, now he's lost his mom. It's not fair. Can you find comfort when things are still bad? I, I'm thankful to God my wife is cancer-free. All of us know lots of people that aren't. Can you find comfort and is God still kind whether you're cancer-free or you're not? Can you find comfort in the goodness of God when you're still in the ash heap? Job is cluing us in. Something happens in this speech of God to move Job's heart to this point. What in the world could God say to bring this kind of dramatic response? I don't know about you, but my heart hungers for it then. My heart says that whatever God said to Job, I want for me. Because no one can promise me that everything's going to turn out better. And people that do, I don't believe you. Because you don't know. Because you're not God. So how can you come to this place of comfort? Comfort in the ashes comes from restlessness turned to trust. And so with that in mind, we then want to unpack what God says to Job. And so we'll start with this image of what is a divine warrior. And we're going to see this in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 40. Um, and, and I'll read from verse 7 down, but, but the main part we'll get into here in 9 through 14. Job says this, or the book of Job says this, Job chapter 40, verse 7. Address for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That's the whole question that Job's been asking. How is this just, God? This isn't fair. And so if this isn't fair, you must not be fair. Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in all the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. We begin with a picture of a divine warrior. I vividly remember being in Brooklyn Park on the south side of Baltimore uh, when I was about 13, 14 years of age. I was playing with some friends. We were playing kickball. It's all row homes. It's, it's frankly a pretty rough part of Baltimore. And we're out playing kickball, and this one neighborhood kid, none of us knew him, he was maybe a year or two younger than I was, came over and he wanted to play with us. So we said, sure. So we're playing kickball. We're having a good time. And this kid was a punk, and he had a mouth on him. And, and he starts saying things, and he's using a lot of profanity, um, and, and he's just being a little bit of a jerk. And there was one of the girls that was playing with us. It was a daughter of a close friend of my mom's. Um, he began to say some things there that just were unbelievably bad. And so it's like nobody knew what to do. So I stood up to the kid, and I'm like, look, you need to beat it. Get out of here. I ran him off. Um, got rid of him. We didn't think anything of it. We just went back to playing. And in a few minutes, I had a rude introduction to the way things rolled in Brooklyn Park. Because coming down the hill was this kid, and he was riding on the back studs of his older brother's BMX. His brother was riding his BMX. And there's this group of like four or five teenagers. They were all older than him. It was his older brother, probably 14, 15 years of age, older than I was, 
they come riding around and ride up on their bikes and ride right into the middle of where we're playing kickball. All the kids scatter. But Steve, as you know, ain't the brightest bulb in the pack, and I'm not running. That was my, I'm not going anywhere. You want to throw down, we're going to throw down. That was my thinking. I'd been in fights. I was like a little one-on-one. I got this kid. The brother jumps off, and I didn't know how they rolled in Brooklyn Park, but they don't do one-on-one. Like in about 20 seconds, it was five-on-one. And I was taking a beating. I was getting punched. I was getting kicked. I'm getting thrown. They were, there was this line of like bushes, and they were using it like the rings on a boxing ring, hitting me into the bushes, and it'd spring me back. All the other kids are screaming. They're on their porches. And I am just getting wore out. And I just even remember this surreal moment. Like, I was like, what is going on here? And then it was like everybody scattered. Because the girl had run inside and told her dad. And her dad was this tough, construction-working Italian guy. Uh, first, second generation from Sicily. Now... You don't mess with these guys. He comes out that house like a tornado. And I mean, these kids can't get their bikes and get out of there quick enough. And he got hold of one of them. Let's just say we never saw those kids again. We never had another problem. You ever been in a fight and you need somebody else to show up? You ever been in a season of suffering And you need somebody else to show up. You ever been so afflicted by evil, by the wicked one of this world, and you need somebody to show up? Job is sitting on the ash heap, covered in boils and maggots. Kids throwing rocks at him and singing songs that they made up about him. All of his friends that he has helped have abandoned him. The only guys that show up are three terrible counselors who literally speak the words of Satan to him. So they don't bring comfort, they just make life worse. The only one that's had any words of comfort is Elihu, and he doesn't even say anything till the end. Job is in a moment of distress, and nothing like suffering can convince you more that you need someone bigger and stronger than you ever could be. This is why it's so astoundingly unhelpful to look to someone in suffering and say, I know you're tough enough, you can get through this. They know they can't. When you're in these kinds of dark seasons and in dark moments, and you are overwhelmed by the forces of the enemy, the wicked one, the evil one, and you don't understand how in God's sovereignty can this be happening, God, I need you to show up. Why are you doing this to me? This is the heart cry of Job, and this is God's answer. The first thing he tells him is that I am a powerful warrior. Now, the language used in these first two verses of this section, verses 9 and 10, is classic Old Testament language to describe God getting ready for battle. And so we want to see his arm, we want to hear his voice, and we want to behold his majesty. He says, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with the voice of love? So we have arm, we, we have voice and we have arm. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds, Psalm 18 says. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He says this in Psalm as God goes over and against his enemies. The language that God is telling Job is not just an image of the Holy One, it is that, but it's the Holy One fit for battle. I think too many people want God to be Grandpa in the sky handing out free Tootsie Rolls. When you're getting overwhelmed by the evil and suffering of this world, you don't need free Tootsie Rolls. You need somebody to whip out the sword and use it. It says it this way in Isaiah 30, the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. 
Psalm 83, I don't have it up there, but it says it this way in verses 13 through 19. Describes God as the shield because of his glory is his shield. His strong right hand, his mighty right hand. Psalm 96, he uses it, but he uses it to defeat the Assyrians. It's really, really clear. And Isaiah, this passage is talking about when God destroys the Assyrians before the children of Israel. And so when we come to Isaiah or come to Job 40, and it's talking about majesty and dignity and arm and thunder, our question would be, what is the end result or what is the goal of God showing his power and his might and his strength? And the next verses tell us it's more than a show. The chief demonstration of the warriors, what does he do with his arm? What does he do with his voice? What does he do with his majesty? These guys look great. I mean, that's, that's two Navy SEALs. Man, these guys are the elite of the elite, right? They're, they're, man's, they're man's men, right? Like, these guys are the toughest guys. It's, it's the hardest special forces program in the world. And, and the dress uniform of the Navy is, is, is great. These guys aren't officers, but even having to wear the, the, that dumb little boat hat, they look tough. They have this, this massive... Navy SEAL, Eagle with a trident. Years and years ago, one of my closest friends was a sniper with the Rangers. And he had trained with and deployed with the SEALs. And, and he had some amazing stories. He got saved in the jungles of Panama, reading through his New Testament, waiting for Noriega. To, they thought he was at a camp in the middle of the jungle. He was waiting, they were waiting for Noriega to poke his head out, and he had a full green light. You see Noriega put a 50 caliber through his head. So my buddy, before he got on the plane, a chaplain gave him a New Testament. So he's sitting in the jungle, got nothing else to do, just laid in the jungle for three days reading the New Testament, got saved. Later he was training with and deployed with the SEALs, and a SEAL gave him his trident. These guys are tough. Let me tell you something, though. When Jessica Buchanan was kidnapped by the Islamic State in Niger and was being held for weeks and was struggling with kidney infections, and was going to die. She didn't need them dressed up. She needed them to show up like this. Look, look, July 4th and Veterans Day marches are wonderful. Thank God for our veterans. But when you're in battle, you need some battle-scarred, tough dudes to show up and deliver you. I glory in the majesty of God. I'm thankful for, for the images of the, that Isaiah gives of him on his holy throne. Praise God for that. I'm thankful for the suffering servant who hung on the cross. But I got to tell you something. When you're in a Job-like situation, you don't need grandpa with Tootsie Rolls. You need Navy SEAL God showing up to defeat your enemies. What does he tell Job? What does he do with all of this power? Verse 11, pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Literally, it means to grind them into the earth. Bind their faces in the world below. Like, (laughs) the poetry of that It's like in our, in our modern language, the best way to, to communicate that verse would be like God showing up, looking Satan and his demons in the eyes, striking them a death blow and saying, back to the hell from which you've come. And he closes by looking at Job and saying, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Do you know what Job is absolutely convinced of? And do you know what you and I become convinced of in the midst of deep grief and suffering? We can't deliver ourselves. I can't just flip a switch and make sorrow go away. You can't just roll over or take a good nap and wake up and not be depressed. You can't just suddenly eat a good meal and not have anxiety anymore. You can't just tune out and watch a movie and the cancer diagnosis go away. Like, you need something more. Like, suffering convinces you that you're not enough. 
It's one of the most difficult parts of suffering. Job is a clearly brilliant man. He's clearly a gifted businessman. He, he, has, he had accumulated vast amounts of wealth, and he used the wealth to help others. When there was widows and orphans, when there was an unjust cause, he would rally his people together and go help them. He would create a private army, almost like Abraham did when he went to rescue Lot. He'd create a private army to go work out justice. Job did all this stuff. Like Job, is, he, he's a strategist, and, and he's brilliant, and he's kind and he's loving. Job is actually in many ways a picture, a foreshadowing of Christ's rule. And all of it is taken from him. So what do you do? What happens to a person who's a planner and who knows strategy and who is a businessman? I can tell you what he's doing. He's always coming up with the next plan. What's the next thing we could do? What's the next endeavor? What's the next initiative we could do? And he can't do any of it. Part of the power of, of going 27 sermons through Job was in soaking in it, as painful as it was, was to be reminded that there are seasons of life that we can't fix. And Job is being reminded, you can't fix this. You need God, the warrior, to show up. I needed some scarred-faced Italian dad to show up. I didn't need nice little lady across the street. Boys, knock it off. I needed somebody to show up that's going to make these dudes scatter. Where, where in your life do you need God to show up? To cause the wicked to scatter? To drive the evil one away? Comfort in the ashes comes from restlessness. Turn to trust. And so what does God do then with this divine warrior image that he paints of himself? Well, he begins to address evil. And he does it in incredible imagery and in poetic imagery. And this is going to run from verse 15 of chapter 40 all the way to, through chapter 41. And so let me just walk us through this somewhat briefly, a little bit of an overview, um, because there's lots of poetry here to communicate, but it's to communicate a couple of key truths. First thing he's trying to communicate is that these are powerful beasts, and it's all through po poetry. And so what he's going to do is he's going to paint to Job a picture of a behemoth and a leviathan. Behemoth literally means the beast. And then we have leviathan. Now, the Old Testament does not take long to describe anyone or anything. Um, it, it's amazing. So Rachel, for example, in the Old Testament is described simply as being beautiful in form and appearance. Leah is described as having weak eyes. That's all you get. David gets a whole phrase. He's ruddy, handsome, and with beautiful eyes. That's all we get. Goliath actually gets a really lengthy description of him personally. It's four verses. Well, the behemoth gets nine and the Leviathan gets 34. The connection between the length given to Goliath, Behemoth, and Leviathan is not accidental. The extensive description, the overwhelming length of it is intended to image the length, breadth, and depth of our suffering. When we run across things that are overwhelming us and we cannot control them and they're driving us to the depths of despair, we have had chapter after chapter after chapter of Job meditating on how bad life is. And here we get verse after verse after verse of these powerful, immensely overwhelming, but at the same time somehow beautiful beasts. The closest comparison we could get to the animals described here, so everybody debates what animals are being described here. The closest description that most would come to for the behemoth or the beast is a hippo, but they admit it doesn't really totally match. And the leviathan as a crocodile. But again, they admit it doesn't really match. And so what are we really talking about? Well, we can think of it categorically. And I think that they are real creatures. Um, and I think the best we could come to would be dinosaurs. And so let me just break it down categorically to help us. First of all, you can see their power. Chapter 40, verse 15 through 18. Behold, behemoth, behold the beast, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. 
Behold, his strength is in his loins, his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. So we, we have this herbivore, but it's of an overwhelming size with this lengthy tail. And so it probably matches an ancient dinosaur. And so the odds are either whether the dinosaurs were still alive at this time, post-flood, antediluvian, or excuse me, post-flood, that would be post-diluvian, um, whether they're alive at this time or they're fresh enough in their minds and in their history to recall them, He's describing a kind of an animal that's an overwhelming in its size and in its power and in its defensiveness. And so it's not attacking men, but it can't be defeated by man. And so even commentators that want to say it's a hippo, at the end of the day, guess what? We can go and kill hippos. When I was a kid, we went to the Baltimore Zoo. Last place you want to go was the hippo house. It smells exactly like you imagined in this moment. Whew. And so they recognize that hippos don't have these massive tails like as long and as big as a cedar tree. Well, we know from the fossil record that there were animals that were like this. And so he's emphasizing its power. If you go to chapter 41, and all of chapter 41 is devoted to the Leviathan. This is the way he's described. Um, His back, I'm actually going to do verse 15. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal, One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are fitted one to another. They clasp each other, cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. This sounds much more like a mythological to us dinosaur. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. And so we have these amazing, powerful creatures. I I just want you to understand, I believe these creatures are real. They are symbolic in the text, though, of the chaotic evil that Job has experienced. I'll prove that in just a moment. Why are they here? Why do they come right after the divine warrior? Who can heal Job's heart from losing 10 kids in one moment? Now, I know, I know. Look, I've read to the end of Job as well. I know that he gets another 10 kids. Just to be clear. I have two of my older kids away to camp this weekend. If I get a call this afternoon, there's been a bus wreck and I've lost two of my kids. I know. Next year I could adopt two more. You think those scars go away? You're crazy if you do. You think Job doesn't remember being abandoned by his friends for the rest of his life? You think Job will not suffer the wounds that were caused during this deep season? He will carry with him, them with him till he goes to the grave. The sufferings of our lives are not just solved like that. And so God describes himself as this divine warrior. And as he begins to describe the powerful things that are arrayed against Job, we could could literally summarize it this way. What are the powerful things arrayed against you? You cannot control them. You cannot change them. And they are causing immense, deep suffering and grief. That's what he's imaging. So they're real, but God is using real descriptions in order to send a message to Job. Let's press on to understand it even further. They're not just powerful. The behemoth is not even described as anything but powerful. Um, But he's not violent. The Leviathan, though, is violent. We read some of these verses already. Let me pick back up, though, in verse 21. His breath kindles coals. A flame comes forth from his mouth. and his neck abides strength. Terror dances before him. It's almost like the behemoth, if you don't mess with him, he doesn't mess with you. The Leviathan, though... Man, nobody wants to be around this creature. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid at the crashing there beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. It's like no weapon of man can defeat him. It feels like a song that we sing. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The power and the strength of him just destroys anything around him. The arrow cannot make him flee. 
For him, sling stones are turned to stubble, clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He's telling us that this creature, when it would start to come up, if you were on the ocean, if you were on the sea, and you would begin to see it begin to appear, you can only imagine the terror that sailors begin to experience behind him. He leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. Is, is this just mythological? We know, again, from the fossil record, there were sea creatures that were functioned like this. The fossil record bones cannot tell us if they were amphibious. But we have creatures that are just as comfortable dwelling in the depths as they are on land. We have creatures, whether it's spitting cobras today, to this day that can spit blinding venom. Skunks can pray, spray noxious fumes. The bombardier beetle shoots out a toxic spray that when it comes out of it is over 200 degrees Fahrenheit. It's actually 212 to be precise because it's the temperature of boiling water. And if it sprays you, it would blind you. Its chemicals, if it lands on your skin, will turn yellow and then brown for weeks. So is it possible that one of these ancient dinosaurs could do this? Yes. And I would actually argue from the authority of Scripture, it's not just possible, it is. Who could, count, who could control a creature like this? And that's actually God's point. They are uncontrollable, they're unusable, and they're unusual. If you look back at verse 24, when it talked about and described him, it's, it's, there's an unusual level of power and of strength. But it's not just this. There's nothing you can do with them. If you go back to the start of chapter 41, uh, or actually the end of 40, can you take him, talking about the behemoth, can you take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Why would you take the behemoth by the eyes or pierce his nose with a This is how you would control an animal in order to get it to do work for you. We like to use oxen or, or horse because we can control them. And if we can control them, we can, we can take an ox and chain it to, to a grinding stone, to a millstone, and it can do all the work for us. And he's saying the power of the behemoth, you can't use it. Chapter 41, can you draw a Leviathan with a fish hook, press down its, its tongue with a cord? In other words, can you control the Leviathan or could you even eat it? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Again, so can you control it or use it? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? In other words, could you take the Leviathan and have so much control over it that you could treat it like a domesticated pet? And he says no. I'm sure all of us remember at SeaWorld the tragedies that have happened over the last few years where trainers have been killed by, by these orcas that they think they control. They're wild animals. Well, this beast, can anyone control it? Can you ride upon it? Can you domesticate it? No, you can't. Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? You can't control this. It's uncontrollable and it's unusable and it's unusual for mankind. It's beyond our comprehension and our control. We just get out of its way. It's not just terrifying creatures. These are evil creatures. These creatures are not intended to evoke wonder at the creation of animals like the first speech of God. They're intended to represent the uncontrollable things in this world. They're intended to represent chaotic evil at work in this world. Think back to Satan. He is the accuser. He is the beast. Needing God's permission. See, humanity cannot control any of these. But when he says, can you draw out Leviathan? Can one take him by the eyes? Can you put a rope in his nose? Do you remember the first speech of Job, first speech of God to Job last week? Where there was one question after another, and what is the answer to every question? I can't. That's his point here. You and I can't control these things that happen in our lives. 
Who are the ones that he tramples into the dust? The proud and the wicked. And so can we be sure that he's intended to represent evil creatures to us? Yes, and I'll give you four ways. First, they're created beings. Both of these are created. Verse 19 of chapter 40 describes the behemoth this way. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. Now, this could mean that the primary, the word there, the first, it could mean he's the very first thing that was ever created. Well, we know from the Genesis account, the behemoth was not the very first thing ever created. We know that. But there's another way to understand that word first. It means it has a primary role in the way God's going to run the world. And that's exactly what this means. The existence of the behemoth and the Leviathan play a primary role in how God intends to govern this world. The existence of evil plays a primary role in how God intends to govern the world. God is not the author of evil or sin, but listen, in his sovereignty, he can use it to still work out his ends. That's mind-blowing stuff. I know that. That's actually going to comfort Job because Job didn't have that category yet. You see, Job recognizes the things that have happened to him are evil. Death of all of his kids and loss of all of his goods and the affliction of enemy forces and his friends abandon him and his wife abandon him, his health leave him. Job understands this is evil. And guess what? God affirms he doesn't deserve all this. God himself is not the one bringing this affliction to Job. But Job didn't have that category. Job did not have a comprehension at this point that there could be an evil force in this world still under God's sovereignty. And so if evil happened, he blamed God, just like lots of people do. Secondarily, ancient Eastern literature. I'm arguing from the least to the greatest. Ancient Eastern literature uses these same animals to describe evil symbolically. For God to say this to Job would have been like, oh yeah, great. This would have been like if I wanted to describe evil to you and I, and I were to say, they're like a Nazi. You're all like, oh, okay, that's bad. Like how do you, like, what's the trump card to that? There is none, right? Like that's the worst thing you said. You're a Nazi. You're a Hitler. Oh, okay. That's like evil personified. So in ancient Eastern literature, in Job's day, in a number of documents, behemoth and Leviathan are described as evil. This is the evil that needs to be conquered. Now, what's interesting is in all of the other ancient Near Eastern literature, the forces of evil, behemoth and Leviathan, it is much more that yin-yang. It's the equal to good. And so you're kind of rooting for good, but you don't know if good's going to win. God doesn't describe it that way. He describes his evil as existing that he's going to crush one day. But it absolutely would have rung true in Job's ears that he's talking about evil. Thirdly, thirdly, they're used elsewhere in the Bible to describe evil. The beast in Psalm 68.30. The Leviathan by Job himself, way back in Job 3.8. Isaiah 27.1, Psalm 74. Leviathan and behemoth are used to represent evil that God destroys. Fourth, significantly, God keeps asking Job, can you control it? Can you capture it? Can you kill it? We haven't met an animal yet that we can't capture or kill, have we? Even the Colossus squid. Like, I think it's something like 40 feet long. If you were to make calamari out of the Colossus squid, the piece of calamari would be as big as a dinner plate. We've found them, we've caught them, we've killed them. Elephant? There is such a thing we call the elephant gun. Polar bears? I've seen a polar bear rug. We haven't found something we haven't been able to capture or kill, have we? These animals are beyond that. They are next level. They represent evil that there's no, nothing man can do to fix it. And yet when he's asking these questions, God, the divine warrior, can and does. Well, guess what we know from Job 1 and 2? Satan could do nothing without 
whose permission? God's. And even in that, does God limit what, Job, what Satan can do to Job? Absolutely. You can do this, but don't touch him. You can touch him, but don't kill him. And God is beginning to unpack to Job a mystery that is critical for us to understand. Let me ask it this way. How does God put his love on display? Let's just approach the argument this way. How does God show his love? Chiefly, chiefly, God proved his love for us and that while we're sinners, Jesus dies for us. Every one of us, man, woman, boy, girl, every person on the planet is a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But God in his great love sent his son, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross for your sins and mine, was buried and rose three days later, and by this, not for wide-eyed, beautiful children, but for ravenous, rabid, homicidal little freaks that we are, and he takes us and he adopts us and he makes us his own. That is how God puts love on display. I love the unlovable, is what he says. You had no family, I bring you in. You have no home, I bring you in. You are deaf and I make you hear. You are blind and I make you see. You are lame and I make you walk. You are dead and I make you live, praise God. That's how he shows love. Not that we love him, but that he has first loved us. But how does God show justice? How does God show wrath? You see, because if you love one thing, you must hate something else. I love life. I hate infanticide, genocide, assisted suicide, and abortion. I hate it. I hate it. I love truth. I hate heresy. I hate prosperity gospel. I hate easy believism. I hate the notion that you can just get on your knee, pray real quick, Jesus come into my heart, and then go do whatever you want to do like you don't serve a holy God. I hate it. It leads people straight to hell. I love my wife and my children. I hate anything that would seek to divide us. I love Jesus and God Almighty. I hate anything that would distract my heart in an idolatrous way. Do you see, if you love something, you must hate something else. God hates sin. With a pure and a powerful and a profound hatred. How will a holy, loving God showcase his wrath and his justice? Romans 9 tells us. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is what he's telling us. God in his sovereignty and his glory and his wisdom has structured and ordered a world that within his sovereignty, within the scope of this, there does exist evil so that he might show that he's not just a dress blues Navy SEAL. He is a grease paint on his face, scarred up battle warrior that'll destroy the things that afflict you and me. Praise God that that's the kind of God he is. You could picture it this way. Everything exists within his sovereign will. Everything. Nothing happens that is not within his sovereign will. Nothing. Nothing. How much? Nothing. But within his sovereign will there exists a moral will. The moral will of God is that which is righteous and holy and good and pure. And so there are things in this world that violate his moral will, that are wicked. You know what? The chief among them was the killing of his own son on the cross. That violates the moral will of God. It was an evil act by evil people. And yet it exists within his sovereign will. And he uses that. Listen, this is, this is mind-blowing stuff. I mean, you just showed up on, you know, it's like two weeks before Thanksgiving. You just showed up this morning like, I know we're going to be in Job again. And here you are, you're getting like, you're getting like, 
graduate level seminary class this morning. I know that, but this is good truth that guess what leads Job to be able to be comforted in his suffering. Your heart needs it, my heart needs it. And so Job's mind is being blown in this moment because he begins to realize this evil personified in behemoth and Leviathan is not God, but it's actually under God's control. And it begins to comfort his heart. And so the very evil act to murder Christ can be worked by God for your good and mine while he still condemns the evil nature of it. And so all of that is to lead us then to the victory. Three points will be all done. Number one, rhetorical questions. This is where God's first speech is really helpful to us. And I've already referenced this, but you remember God asked Job one rhetorical question after another. And in fact, it's the best that I could count. Um, so best I could count, right? I'm no math elite. But God asked Job 39 questions in his first speech. 39 times. Can you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? How about this? Can you do that? Every one of those questions can be answered the same way. I can't and I don't know. God can and God knows. Every one of them. I can't. I don't know, God. Oh, were you there when I created the world? No, I wasn't. Do you understand how the world works? No, I don't. Are you there with the, the, with the mountain goat when it births its, when it births its young? No, I'm not. Um, are you there at the ends of the earth? No, I'm not. Do you walk along the depths of the ocean? No, I don't. God, you are there when the mountain goat gives birth and you are there in the depths of the sea and you do know what life is like after death and you are in control of everything. Every rhetorical question, 39 times, I don't know and I can't do it. God knows and God can do it. All of that was to prime Job's pump for this. Can you control evil? No, I can't, but I know the one who can. Rhetorical question after rhetorical question. Can Job snare or defeat Behemoth? Chapter 40, verse 24. Can Job capture, defeat, or control Leviathan? Chapter 41. Victory over evil, control over evil, use of evil. Listen to me, use of it. Do you remember part of it was can you, can you snare it so you can use it? Could you use Leviathan to crush grain? Can you control the Behemoth? Can you train it to be domesticated? You and I cannot domesticate evil. We cannot control it. Satan could do nothing without asking God for permission first. Right now, closest, most recent statistics we have, a burglary occurs every 30 seconds. Every 30 seconds. This is just the United States. Violent, a crime occurs every 25 seconds. Someone is murdered in the United States roughly every three minutes. Someone is raped in the United States every four minutes. A child is reported as abused or neglected every 35 seconds in the United States. A woman experiences domestic abuse every single minute, and a man every six minutes. Currently in slavery or forced marriage in the, on the planet. How many people are currently enslaved or in a forced marriage uh, in the planet right now? 49 million people. If we just go to the vile disease of cancer that has afflicted so many people in our church body, 1,670 people die from cancer every day in the United States. Who can defeat evil? Job can't. I can't. You can't. But God can. Secondarily, there is an ultimate victory. What does victory look like then? He, God tells himself the divine warrior and he describes all this to Job and Job's response to this is one of praise. Wow, I know you can do all things. Nothing can thwart your purposes. So in other words, the loss of my 10 kids, the loss of my health, the loss of wealth and respect, the loss of my wife, it feels like behemoth and Leviathan. It feels out of control and overwhelming and I can't fix it. But all of this somehow mysteriously is in his control. What does victory look like? As Josh preached the funeral for his mother, he said things about her I did not know. She lost her own mother in a horrific car accident at 15 that left her living the rest of her years in a home with an abusive alcoholic father. She lived through two fires, losing everything. She lost her husband 17 years ago, had to raise nine children as a single mom. 
She suffered a horrible accident 11 years ago that rendered her in chronic, daily, unrelenting pain for the last 11 years of her life. And then just a few weeks ago, she was crashed into by someone doing 70 miles an hour. She was sent to rehab. Eventually, she had a surgery. The doctor said there's three things that could happen in the surgery. She can die, she'll never walk again, or she'll have a miserable life. She came out of surgery. She could walk. She didn't die. She knew it was going to be a long, painful road ahead for her. And so she was pushing herself, pushing and pushing and pushing in rehab, pushing for her grandchildren, pushing for her children, pushing so that she might continue to mother and love and grandmother and serve. And she collapsed in the middle of rehab trying to push herself and died of a heart attack. Where's her victory? Josh preached this and he read this from Revelation. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. For Ina Pregram, she ran her race and she ended her race and she's now in a place where there's no pain and there's no crying and there's no mourning. To be very clear, there is a future victory for every one of us. There is a future victory for every one of us who believes in Christ. There is a day coming where Christ rules and there's no more pain. There's no more death. And there's no more diagnosis and empty bank accounts and abuse. It's all gone. All the things that we have lost, Jesus said it this way in Matthew. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last verse. Oh, how I long to see Jesus. But what did Job say? He said, I'm comforted in the middle of the ash heap. Job is comforted before there's any restoration. Job is comforted before he gets 10 children or his health back. Can there be victory here? Can there be comfort in the ashes here? This is a very specific battle that's going on. Remember, Satan said, does Job love God for nothing? In other words, Job loves you to get from you, God. And God, you love Job manipulating him because you're so insecure. The whole book of Job has been about that battle. The whole book of Job has not been about heaven. It's about how do we do life here on earth in the midst of unrelenting behemoth and Leviathan level pain that we can't control. And Job is comforted. So I just want to ask, what does victory in that battle look like? What does victory look like in the face of puzzling pain? And it looks like one word. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. You see, what Job comes to before there's ever restoration... As he comes to this point of understanding, God hasn't answered all of Job's why questions. What he simply said is, I'm good, I'm loving, and I'm powerful. This also is in my hand, and I'm using it, Job. And Job's response to that is, I can live at rest and in comfort, trusting because he loves me. And he's good. And in that moment, Job, get this now, in the power of God Almighty, puts his foot on the throat of Leviathan and says, you're defeated. Can I just call you, in the midst of your puzzling pain, to be faithful? When Job is still faithful and trusting, when Job is still loving and following, he tells us that God is good and he is worthy of our praise. And so what that tells me is in my life this week, 
when I feel like Leviathan has raised itself out of the deep and is blowing fire into my face, that there is yet a divine warrior, and one day he will defeat all the evil. But in this day, I can be a part of the victory march of this battle by simply doing the next faithful, right thing God has called me to do. Because in the face of unrelenting evil, what I am saying in that moment of faithfulness and trust in God is you are not in control, my God is. And I look forward to eternal defeat of you. But I rejoice in today's defeat of you. Is I will not let you drive me from the feet of my Savior. Can I call us to be faithful? Because he is good and he is loving. I don't have to ask for trials. They're going to come. You don't have to ask for them. They're going to come. You don't have to ask for puzzling pain. It's going to come. But what I call you to and what I call you to shout to one another in the trenches of puzzling pain is God is in control and he is good. And so let us be faithful.